Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Focusing on uh, Judges chapter 13, verse 5, the Bible says, For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. The passages that we just read were written during a very dark and violent time in the history of Israel. Moses had led the children of Israel out of Egypt, but Moses was not allowed to go into Canaan, the promised land. At Moses' death, Joshua was given the leadership of the 12 tribes of Israel by God. Joshua led Israel into Canaan, and they conquered most of the land. But after the death of Joshua, the Bible says that the 12 tribes of Israel were without a king. And in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, the Bible says that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Think of a society where people do that which is right in their own eyes. There are some spiritual parallels between what was happening in ancient Israel and what's happening in our country today. Keep your mind and your spirit sensitive to that possibility as we move through this lesson. So God, in his grace and his mercy, during this time of violence, during this time of bitter sin, during this time of darkness, God raises up 12 men and one woman. They're called the judges. The entire book is about the judges keeping in mind that Israel had no king at the time. But God still loves the children of Israel. So he raised up the judges to provide leadership to the nation of Israel. He raised up the judges to continue his personal involvement with Israel. And among those judges is the person described here in uh, Judges chapter 13, verse 5. The Bible is, says that the angel of the Lord appears to a woman and tells this woman that she's going to have a baby. She was barren. She couldn't conceive. She had no idea that God was going to bless her life with a child. But this is a special child. The Bible says that this child shall have no razor come on his head. You won't cut his hair. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of its enemies, the Philistines. What's a Nazarite? A Nazarite is a person who's called out, a man or a woman, called by God to live a holy life. Indulge me. Turn to uh, uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verse 1. Keeping your place in uh, Judges 13. Numbers, chapter 6, verse 1. The title of this message is Set Apart. What we're going to do is get some object lessons from the life of a Nazarite. However, we need to see exactly what a Nazarite is. Numbers, chapter 6, verse 1. If you're not there, I'll read it for you. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. So bottom line, don't drink uh, fermented wine. Verse 4, 
All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree from the kernels even to the husk. Verse 5, all the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled in the which he separateth himself unto the Lord. What? He shall be holy, the Bible says, and shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. He shall be holy. That's what the call of a Nazarite is. The call of a Nazarite is to be separated. The call of a Nazarite is to be set apart from the surrounding society. What's the application to you in 2016? If there was a time in your life where you turned from sin and trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and he changed your heart from a heart of stone into a, into a heart soft, a heart of flesh, a heart yielding to him, if you were born again, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, then you are called to be set apart. We live in a world today where it feels like the world is spinning off its axis. That's how it feels to me as a Christian. I don't indulge, I don't participate in the things of the world. I don't listen to the music. I don't read the books. I don't go to the, to the websites. I don't watch the television shows. But I'm still impacted by the world spinning around and around and around. By this time next year, there's a strong possibility that marijuana will be legalized as a recreational drug here in California. Our world is spinning around and around on its axis. There is a time that we looked where you didn't have to be concerned about who was going to use a bathroom. One, one sign would say men, the other sign would say women, and that was the end of that. But now there's great conflict all across our nation about gender-neutral bathrooms. And the state of North Carolina is being boycotted. The NCAA, NCAA the National Collegiate Athletic Association, they've determined that they're going to take seven of their championship games out of North Carolina because of North Carolina's refusal to have gender-neutral bathrooms. That's what our nation has come down to. Who would have thought 20 years ago that same-sex marriage would be the law of the land? Who would have thought 40 years ago that abortion on demand would be the law of the land? That's what's happening in our society. Our life has changed in a short period of time. Our life has changed in 40 short years. And during that period, God has called Christians to be set apart. We're not supposed to walk as the world walks. We're not supposed to look as the world looks. We're not supposed to smell the way the world smells. We're not supposed to indulge in the same entertainments that the world indulges in. That's our calling. The calling of the Nazarite in this passage was to be set apart also. The only thing that's changed over the last 3,000 years within the human condition is technology. But the heart of man remains the same. The heart of man is dark, desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. From within, out of the heart of man, comes thefts, fornications, adulteries, evil thoughts. From within, out of the heart of man. We have not changed. What's different between us as a set-apart people and what's different between uh, the world is that the world thinks there's something basically good about us. The world thinks there's something good about man. But the Bible has a different point of view. The Bible has God's point of view. God's point of view is that man is totally depraved. Ooh, that's kind of harsh, preacher. The Bible says that man is totally depraved. For as by one man, the Bible says, sin and death came into the world. That's why if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you need to turn and know him today. Why? Because sin and death came into the world, and the wages of sin is death. And we are surrounded by a world spinning off its axis, where sin is glorified, 
Sin is lifted up. There's reality show after reality show after reality show on television. And all it does is glorify the wickedness of man's heart. I wish there were as many Christian-based, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving shows on ABC, NBC, and CBS that lifted up God. But it's not. You'll see names like the Kardashians. You'll see names like Teen Mom. You'll see all this kind of stuff on your, on your secular television stations. And all it does is lift up sin. So as Christians in the world spinning off its axis, God has called you to be apart from this world system around us. Now the Nazarite in this passage, if you haven't figured it out by now, has a name. And his name is Samson. Samson was a judge that God raised up during a very difficult time in Israel. The Philistines are attacking the children of Israel. The Midianites are attacking the children of Israel. It's a very bloody and violent time. Israel is in a state of disunity among themselves. They have no leadership. They have no king. So God raises up Samson to be their leader. Samson was a judge over Israel for 20 years. These events that we're talking about didn't happen within the course of a month or so. It happened over a span of 20 years. And Samson had a special calling on his life, just like we do. Samson was called to holiness. Samson was called to a life of righteousness. Samson was called to be a leader in a leaderless, sinful society, just like us. That's our role. That's our purpose. That's why we're here today. That's why God is asking us to preach a message to you so that you'd open up your spiritual ears, your spiritual eyes, let your spiritual understanding be impacted by the Holy Ghost, that you might see what God's purpose is truly for your life. We have some object lessons that we can learn from the life of this Nazarite. He was a man that was called out for a life of holiness, but he was just a man, a very strong man, but he was just a man. And that's how I feel sometimes. I've lived an extensive amount of time on the earth. I'll be 67 my next birthday. I've had quite a few uh, enjoyable places and times in my life, accomplished a few things. But at the end of the day, when I'm in that box at the front of the church, he's just a man. My identity doesn't rest in being Dr. Rodney Brooks. My identity doesn't address in any other titles that I've collected over the last 60 years or so. My identity rests in the fact that I'm a Christian. Not a Republican, not a Democrat, not a Libertarian, not a conservative, not a progressive. I'm a Christian, first and foremost. Saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. The first time I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, I was 28 years old. Did not grow up in the church. Didn't, wasn't required to go to church. Didn't know that God that came, on, came to earth and died on the cross for my sins. Didn't know any of that. Thought I was a good person. I was doing all the right things. Was going to school, holding down a job. Wasn't robbing, shooting, killing, stealing. Doing all the good stuff. Thought that I was ready for heaven. Why? Because I was a good guy. I wasn't one of the bad guys in the neighborhood. I took care of my mother. I loved my mother. She loved me. I was respectful to adults. All the things that a, a good kid is supposed to do. But I was on my way to hell. Why? Because there was never a time in my life where I put my faith, my confidence, my trust 
in Jesus Christ. There was never a time that I recognized my need for a Savior, and that Savior covered my sins in the blood that he shed for me at Calvary. That didn't happen until I was 41 years of age. So God came, changed my life, and then called me to a life of holiness. Not that it's all been uh, roses and uh, rose-colored glasses. I've stumbled and I've fallen along the way. But God has reached down and picked me back up, covered me in the blood of Jesus Christ, said, go ahead, son, try it again. And I walked another mile or two, stumbled, fell down. God picked me up, dusted me in the blood of Jesus Christ, and sent me on my way. But I know through his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness that he calls me not to a life of continue with stumbling, but he calls me to a life of standing on the promises of Christ, my King. Leading a holy life with my head up, covered in the armor of God, praying, reading his Bible faithfully, telling sinners about Jesus Christ and their need for a Savior, resisting temptation, resisting the foibles of the world, resisting the temptation for fame and money and ambition, and most of all, conquering my own feelings. God has called us as Christians to live that kind of life, to be set apart, to be holy, the same way that he called Samson. So we're going to look at this Nazarite who was called by God to a holy life, and we're going to see some certain things about him. The first point will be he trusted his strength. Secondly, he trusted his cleverness. He trusted his emotions. He trusted his pride. And he trusted the Lord. You may see yourself reflected in some of these points. Because once again, Samson is just like you and I. He was born, he lived, and he died. He had moments of great faith, and he had moments of great doubt. That's why his story is here. 3,000 years later, as an example to us as an example to you, how the Christian life is. Look for the spiritual parallels as we move through this. First and foremost, we find that he trusted his strength. Judges chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. Next chapter, Judges chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. First, we find in Judges chapter 14, verse 5, that Samson went down and his father and his mother uh, to Timnath and came to the vineyards of Timnath, and behold... A young lion roared against him. Hmm. That was the lion's first mistake. Verse 6, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon Samson, and he rent and he tore, as he would have rent a kid, a baby goat. And he had nothing in his hand, and he told not his father or his mother what he had done. Here's the picture. So Samson's going to a town called Timnath. In those days, dusty roads, rocks, Towns might be 20, 25 meters apart or kilometers apart. So Samson's walking down the road. And all of a sudden, not just a lion, but a young lion, the Bible says, jumps out onto the path. Why a young lion? Because a young lion is bold. A young lion don't, doesn't know any better. A young lion wants to kill. A young lion wants to earn his stripes, if you will, so that one day he'll become an old lion and maybe in charge of the, the pride or something like that. That's animal behavior there. So the young lion sees what he thinks is easy prey. 
I'll get a little practice in hunting here today, taste a little human blood, and then I'll get a little bit stronger and go get ready for my next kill. That's what the lion is thinking in his animal mind. But he picks on the wrong guy. So the lion jumps out on the road and he roars. <sighs> Samson sees him. I like that roar. Samson sees him. Samson had a choice. Could have run, but he chose not to. Could have picked up a rock with his strength, thrown that rock, whapped it in the middle of the head, sent the lion on its way. Could have picked up the jawbone of an ass and whipped the lion across the head a couple of times. He had some choices there. But Samson is young, too. <laughs> Samson is young, too. So a young lion jumps on a young man. And what's the young man do? He doesn't think like a 50- or 60-year-old man. He thinks like a young man. So he grabs the lion <laughs> and tears him in half. All right? after the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. That's a pretty good ego booster there. To destroy a lion with your bare hands. And he's such a, he's such a kid, he's such a young guy, that he doesn't tell his mother or father what he did. Because what mama's going to say, what were you thinking? <laughs> but he didn't, tell, he didn't tell mom or dad what he did. If he told dad, dad would have said, well, next time, you know, use a, use a rock or something, okay? You know. But uh, he, kept, he kept that information to himself. So that's his first challenge there. And he tears this lion in half and he's feeling pretty good. So he's depending on his strength. The Bible does say that the spirit of the Lord came upon him. But what I'm leading up to is that he's not depending on the spirit of the Lord. The Bible says that Samson was blessed by God. The Bible says that Samson was called out to be separated from his, his world and his environment that was around him. But he's thinking, I'm strong. And what do young boys do? We test our strength. When you're a boy, lady, and you're about five or six years old, it's the first thing you do. Find out who you can wrestle. <laughs> who can I beat? <laughs> and that's the first thing you do in the neighborhood. So you start wrestling with the, the other little guys in the neighborhood. Then as you get a little bit stronger, especially in your teenage years, what do you do? You find a sport to play. So you can get out there and test yourself, be it football or basketball or soccer or lacrosse. You find, a, you find a sport that you can play where you can test your, your, your muscles. And you guys who are fathers and you have a son, look forward to the time where your son's going to walk up to you and test you. <laughs> Mine tried it at 15. And he had his little muscles and he, he was playing football, you know, in high school and getting whacked around pretty good. And my son came up and tested me. So I... Just papped him. You know, not hard. <laughs> not hard. But I just caught him in the chest. He's 35 years old now. He survived. Dean of students at the school. But you ask him about the time, you know, he tested his daddy. And he'll tell you to this day, you know, that he's still, still in shock. <laughs> because that's what kids do. That's what little boys do. They're going to they're gonna test the masculine figure in their house. And you don't hurt them, you know but you got to make them remember. So here you have Samson, who has all this strength. Strength comes from God, but he's thinking, man, look what I just did. Look what I just did. So he's depending on his strength, just like little boys do. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 27, verse 1, the Lord is the light of my salvation. The Lord is the light of my salvation. Christian, the Lord is the strength of my life. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is the strength of my life. With Samson, 
The strength came from the fact that on a dusty road, he was able to defeat a lion with his bare hands. Missing the point that as a called out believer, that the Lord is the strength of his life. And that's what we need to remember today. Because sometimes, as men and women, we depend on our own strength, we depend on our own intellect, we depend on our own intelligence. We think how, how, how smart we are, how strong we are. There are ladies in this room who could probably put drywall up or you know, replace you know, electric, electricity or something like that. You know, that's pretty cool. But it's the Lord that gives you the strength and the wisdom how to do that. So the first thing we see about Samson is that he trusted his strength. Secondly, he trusted his cleverness. Judges chapter 14, verse 10. Judges chapter 14, verse 10. So keep in mind, the, uh, the lion is dead. Uh, Samson was quite a womanizer, so he sees uh, this woman that he wants to marry, and what happens is a, a wedding feast is uh, set up for him. So in Judges chapter 14, verse 10, so we see that uh, Samson's father went down into the woman, the woman that Samson wants to marry. Samson made there a feast for who used the young men to do. So if you wanted to marry a young lady in those days, you had to have a wedding feast. Wedding feasts would last about five or six days. Now, in uh, verse uh, 11, it came to pass when they saw him uh, that they bought 30 companions to be with him. That's the father and the woman. So he didn't know these guys. They're Philistines. So... 30 of them are called to this five or six day wedding feast that uh, Samson wants to have. So Samson, in verse 12, he says to the 30 companions, I will now put forth a riddle unto you. Judges chapter 14, verse 12. I will now put forth a riddle unto you. If you can certainly declare it me seven days, seven day feast, and find it out, then I will give you 30 sheets and 30 chains of garments. It's a lot of clothes. Verse 13. But if you cannot declare it to me, Samson says, then shall ye give me 30 sheets and 30 change of garments. And they said unto him, put forth the riddle that we may hear it. Tell us this riddle, Samson. And he said unto them, out of the eater came forth meat, out of the strong came forth sweetness. And they could not in three days, three days, expound the riddle. Couldn't figure it out. What was Samson talking about? What was in this riddle? Very simple. He killed the lion. And when he went back to the carcass of the lion, Bees had settled in the lion's carcass, created honey. So out of the strong came meat, honey. And out of, out of uh, this lion came sweet, honey is sweet. So that's what the riddle was. So these guys were going over in their minds for three days trying to figure out the meaning of the riddle. So Samson's just having a, clever, a good old time. He's thinking about how clever I am, how smart I am. I've just sat here and tricked 30 people, you know, with my riddle. But what happened was is that Philistines came to his wife and kept saying, what's the meaning of the riddle? What's the meaning of the riddle? If you don't tell us, we're going to kill you and your father. Well, that's pretty harsh. So obviously she didn't want to die, so she told them the meaning of the riddle. So Samson, uh, he got a little upset about that because he trusted his cleverness. And he was upset because they found out what the meaning of the riddle was. In Psalm chapter 34, verse 2, the Bible says, My soul shall make her boast in thee, Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Samson trusted in his own cleverness. And we're going to see in a few moments what the results of those cleverness was. It ended in death. It ended in violent death. It had ended in uh, uh, the murder of this woman and her father. 
These are harsh times. These are dark times. But he trusted not in the Lord, but he trusted in his own cleverness. I'll give these guys a riddle. They won't be able to solve it. And at the end, I'll get 30 different changes of clothes. Didn't work out that way. As human beings, you know, we tend to trust in our own cleverness. We think we're, as I used to say when I was a kid, smarter than the average bear. Over the last week or so, there's been a lot of emphasis on the murder of John Benet Ramsey. John Benet Ramsey was a six-year-old beauty pageant queen back in the early 90s. She was found strangled, beaten, sexually assaulted in the basement of her family's home. There are two theories in this murder case. I was a detective for 25 years at the Glendale Police Department, so of course this kind of spurred my interest to look at these documentaries. So I've looked at about five or six documentaries over the last week or so, and each one gives you a different piece of the puzzle. So you have two, two theories to this particular crime. First theory is that an intruder broke into the house, took her from her bedroom, took her to the basement, strangled her, beat her, sexually assaulted her. Little six-year-old girl, cute as a button. The other theory is that someone within the family murdered her or hit her in the head, killed her accidentally, and then attempted to cover up the murder by staging a crime scene that indicated sexual assault intruder breaking into the house, um, and the rest of the elements that you would think as an untrained eye you would look for at a crime scene that was supposed to have been a kidnapping that went wrong. So you got two possible theories. Um, the problem with murder is that all the evidence is in front of you. Whatever you, if you kill somebody, it's left at the scene. And I've been to, can't tell you how many homicides I've been to, how many homicides and assaults I've investigated. What happens is, with the Ramsey family, is that they were too clever for their own good. So if you look at the clues of the case, all the clues point toward the family. And it's all in front of us. And I'm not going to belabor what all the clues are. But as an investigator, I'm sitting there looking at it, and I'm saying that the answer to this murder was right in front of the Boulder Police Department. But their eyes were blinded by the wealth, the prestige, the influence of John Ramsey as the dad. So if they had controlled the crime scene, they had controlled the people that had come into the house, uh, if they had con uh, controlled the interviews, if they had done a better job of police work and detective work, we now wouldn't be talking today about who killed John Benet Ramsey. And it was very interesting that a grand jury uh, came back with the decision that the Ramsey family was responsible for her homicide, but the district attorney did not file charges against John Benet Ramsey's family. So if you look at all the evidence, yeah, you know, somebody in the family did it. And we can talk about it offline if you want to. But it's an interesting case. The point is, is that John, John Benet Ramsey's father and mother thought they were so clever that they could stage a crime scene. And that trained investigators will walk into that crime scene and believe, oh yeah, somebody kidnapped this girl from the third floor of this huge house, took her down to a remote wine cellar, assaulted her, killed her, and then snuck out through a little broken window in the basement. And you don't have to be sure about Holmes to figure out there's something wrong with that picture. That's the cleverness of man. The child was probably injured accidentally, maybe in a fit of rage, 
All you had to do is just call 911 and let the chips fall where they may. You know, my baby's dying, can you get an ambulance here quickly? And then you talk later on about what happened. But instead, they tried to cover up their sin with more sin. And then her mom winds up dying later on from ovarian cancer. I don't know if that's the judgment of God, if it's related, that's beyond my pay grade. But I know that that sin will be found out. Point is that man is clever, but not as clever as God. We find that Samson was clever in his relationship with the Philistines by telling his little riddle. But they found out anyway what the truth was. And as a result, he went out and uh, he, uh, in verse 19, Judges chapter 14, verse 19, and the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. He went down to Ashkelon and he slew 30 men of them, took their spoil and gave change of garments unto them, which expounded the riddle and his anger was kindled. And he went up to his father's house, verse 28, but Samson's wife was given unto his companion whom he had used as his friend. What's it all mean? It means that 30 innocent guys died so that Samson could pay off his debt. He went down to Ashkelon, killed 30 guys, took their clothes, and gave it to the 30 companions at the wedding feast. And these guys who got whacked, they had no idea why they were getting killed. But it's because of Samson's cleverness went south. Samson's cleverness wasn't clever enough to fool uh, the men who were sitting at the wedding feast. So we find that Samson trusted his strength. Samson trusted his cleverness. We should not trust our cleverness. The Bible says that we need to be humble before the Lord. I'm, I'm getting there. Stay with me. We should be humble before the Lord. Next, the Bible says that he trusted his emotions. Judges chapter 14, verse 19. Once again, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. He went down to Ashkelon. He slew 30 men of them, took their spoil, gave change of garments unto them, which expounded the riddle, and his anger was kindled. So he was mad. His emotions took control. His emotions took over. It wasn't enough that he killed 30 men and took their clothes to pay off his, his debt. But he was angry. And with his anger, he went up to his father-in-law's house. And once he got to his father-in-law's house, he found out that his wife was given to his companion. I'd be highly upset, too. So this woman that he went through all these changes for, his father-in-law decided, I'm going to give her away to somebody else. And as a result, he was really upset at this point. So we find that he let his emotions take over. He let his emotions take charge. In Psalm 1914, the Bible says, and I'll read it to you, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. That's the kind of life we want to live as Christians. We don't want to be emotion-driven. We don't want to be feelings-driven. And it's hard, understand, when that anger and that bitterness, when that jealousy, when that hatred, when that dislike rises up out of our hearts. But you see, the end result of letting our emotions guide us instead of letting the word of God guide and control our lives, it has disastrous results. When I, uh, I've seen two riots since in my life. Uh, it seems like we see them every week now in the United States. But the first one, I was 18 years old. Martin Luther King had been assassinated and the cities exploded all over America. I was living in Baltimore, Maryland. I was sitting on the front porch and as uh, the word came out that Martin Luther King had been murdered. And it's like 
the streets just exploded right in front of my eyes. It was a store in the corner owned by a Jewish family, the Levine brothers. One was nice, the other one was not so nice. Still remember those guys to this day. And I was sitting there watching the store being looted. And I still remember my mother standing in the door behind me saying, don't you go over there. And I thank her for saying that. Don't you go over there. So I sat on the porch and watched it. After the riots quelled down, that store was looted, and there was a marketplace nearby that was looted also. So we had to go way, 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 way outside of our neighborhood just to get bread, just to get milk. That was the result of emotions gone awry. Second riot was in 1992 after the verdicts and the Rodney King beating case came back in. And we were living 15 minutes from here, still living in the same place, right in the heart of South Central Los Angeles. Watts is right across the street. Brother Price used to live with us back in his bachelor days. And the uh, city exploded all around us because of the verdict that came in. And I turned on the TV. I was a cop at the time. I turned on the television set. And for 48 hours, there was no help anywhere. And I'm watching the city burn all around us. And this corner store was being looted. And I would take my gun and I'd walk out and walk a patrol around my house just to make sure that my family was safe. And it wasn't until the National Guard came in on the third day and quelled the riot and numbers were dead, businesses were torched, cars burned, tires burned in the streets the whole bit, that it was safe you know, for uh, me to go back to work and leave my family alone. Came close to killing a guy that day because he had my family in the car, we were trying to get home and there was riding on both sides of the street headed toward our house and this guy walked up on our car and he had a brick in his hand, a rock in his hand, he's getting ready to throw it through the window. And we had five kids at the time, they were all babies, Renee was in the passenger seat, had a 357 Magnum right between us and I'm watching this guy in the rearview mirror walk up on our car, listening to the riot on the news. And he looked and we made eye contact in the rearview mirror and he saw that I was black. And he turned around and went the other way. And to this day, he would never know how close he came to meeting his death. Because I was ready to defend my family at any cost. That fellow controlled his emotions. That's what saved his life that day. If not, I was prepared to smite him hip and thigh. <laughs> I'm getting ready to go Old Testament on this guy. Why? To protect my family. He made the right decision. He was upset about the verdict in the Rodney King case. He's probably upset about the death of Latasha Harlan. That's another story. He's probably upset about the verdict in the O.J. Simpson case, whatever. But when he walked up on that car, he made a decision not to follow his emotions. And he backed away. And he lived to see another day. And that doesn't make me a hero or some tough guy. I'm not a tough guy. But I get very protective of my family in situations like that. So fortunately, he backed away, and I was able to get my family home, and, and we uh, got to our home, and we spent the next 48 hours, you know, hoping that uh, somebody would answer 911, but they wouldn't do that either. So we were pretty much on our own. No police, no fire. And then finally, the Army showed up and bailed us out. That's what emotions do. Emotions lead to death, violence, and destruction. So God, glad God gave me a strong woman. You know, 
she was able to handle business while I was handling business. So she wasn't, you know, some wilting flower about this business. You know, she got, got with the program. It's kind of like being in a war situation. So I thank God for uh, my wife. We need to control our emotions. We need to control our emotions. We need to control our feelings. We're emotional people. I get it. We feel. We hear, smell, touch. Even now we have emotions. Boy, when's this message going to be over? Man? It seems like I've been talking a long time. We have feelings. I'm hungry. My stomach's rolling. I'm hungry too. I had a half a piece of toast for breakfast. You know, what are we talking about here? But we need, I need to control that feeling. I've got, got a responsibility here today. I can't think about my, my half piece of toast and the cup of coffee I have for breakfast. I have to think about you and your soul and what God wants me to do at this moment. So we control our emotions. We let the words of our mouth and meditation of our hearts be acceptable in the sight of God. And if you don't see a pattern here yet, I'm coming out of Judges, but then I'm giving you Christian support out of the book of Psalms in David's word. So we see that Samson trusted his strength, Samson trusted his cleverness, Samson trusted his emotions, and then Samson trusted his pride. Samson trusted his pride. In uh, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, you don't have to turn there, but very rarely that the Bible tells us that God hates something. But in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, God tells us two things that God hates. He hates pride and he hates arrogance. Why does he hate pride? Why does he hate arrogance? because that's what caused the split and division in heaven. When Lucifer said, I will be like the Most High God, that's where pride originated. I will be, I will, my will, Lucifer said. And a third of the angels in heaven decided to trust Lucifer. And there was a great battle in heaven between Lucifer's angels and Michael's angels. And Lucifer's angels and Lucifer lost. And they were cast out of heaven into earth's atmosphere. Lucifer became Satan and the angels became the demons. That's the result of the I will. I will. So because of that, God says, I hate pride. I hate arrogancy. But Samson trusted in his pride. It's a strong guy. Not only did he kill the lion, but you know, he took the jawbone of a, of a donkey and he killed a thousand men in battle. That's a pretty good ego boast booster. I can do all kind of stuff. His pride got in the way. In Judges chapter 16, verse 4, turn the page. And it came to pass that Samson loved a woman in the valley of Sarek, whose name was Delilah. There are certain names that pass down through history. Delilah is one of them. Cleopatra. Joan of Arc. Jezebel, they're like some names that will last forever. Nobody names their baby Delilah. You moms, anybody thinking about naming their baby Delilah? Ain't going to happen. Just like naming your baby De Jezebel. You, you want to name your next baby Jezebel? I don't think so. All right. So Delilah's one of them. But she was probably a great conversationalist. She was smart. She was probably uh, attractive, no doubt. Samson was a definite womanizer. And Samson fell in love with Delilah. So we go over to uh, Judges chapter 16, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 16. 
And the Bible says, And it came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death. Verse 17, that he told her all his heart. He told her all his heart. What did she want to know? Where do you get your strength from? Where do you want to get your strength from? Where do you get your strength from? So he tricked her three times. You know, you read the chapter. He tricked her three times. I get my strength from this. I get my strength from that. I get my strength from this. So instead of just telling her, it's none of your business, he was toying with her. He was playing with her. He didn't tell her the truth about where his strength came from. Stop. What's the problem? His strength is a holy thing. Our calling as Christians is a holy thing. It's not a toy. It's not something you could buy. It's not something that you can uh, order on Amazon. Our calling as Christians is a holy thing. It's precious in the sight of God. Why? Because he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. Why? Because he became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Why? Because the Son of God lay in a cold tomb for three days because of you and you and you. And when you trusted him as Lord and Savior, God gave you a gift. Not something that you earned. God gave you a gift. Not something that you desire. God gave you a gift. Not something that uh, you think you uh, are deserved. There's no sense of entitlement when it comes to being a Christian. You have no entitlement when it comes to being a Christian. It's God's grace, God's mercy, God's love, God's forgiveness that manifests itself in the form of Jesus Christ. And it's a free gift given to you so that you can share that knowledge with someone else that they might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Samson's mistake was that he, hey, he was a prideful man. So he thought that this holy thing that God has given me, this calling on my life to be a Nazarite, never cut my hair, to be separated from the Philistinian world, to be separated from the world of the Medeans, to be separated from idolatry, to be separated from anything that God finds unrighteous, was a toy. So he's with Delilah, and he toys with her, and he toys with her, and he toys with her. But then what happens is Delilah keeps asking him day after day after day, What's the secret of your strength? And what happens? It wears Samson down. In 1 Peter, the Bible says that Christians can be vexed, worn down by the filthy conversation of the wicked. Used to happen in my workplace, working with cops and firefighters. They curse a lot. Might be the same thing in your workplace or school or maybe even your own home. You might be living with some unbelieving relative. But sooner or later, it wears you down. And you have to seek the Lord. You have to get revived. You have to pray. You have to read your Bible. You have to come to church regularly. You have to go out and soul win just to get revived and feel that thrill that comes from knowing Jesus. So Samson's pride gets in the way and he finally gets worn down by the filthy conversation of the wicked. Over in verse 19, the Bible says, she made him sleep upon her knees. St. Judges chapter 16, verse 19. And she made him sleep upon her knees, and she called for a man, and she caused him, the man, to shave off the seven locks of Samson's head, and she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. Verse 20, and he, she said, the Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. 
What happened there? All this time, he was depending on his own strength. He was depending on his own cleverness. He was depending on his own emotions. He trusted his pride. But when the moment of truth came, Delilah had the seven braids on his hair cut off. That's where his strength came from. And she said, the Philistines are upon you. He woke up, and he could not defend himself because he did not know that the spirit of the Lord was no longer upon him. And they came in, they captured Samson. And they blinded him, they poked his eyes out. They took him down to Gaza on the way to Egypt, and they put him in a, a mill where he was forced to grind wheat. And he stayed there for the longest time until his hair began to grow back. So we have a man, Nazarite, set apart in an evil world to be holy. But generally, he led an unholy life. And he trusted his strength, he trusted his cleverness, he trusted his emotions, he trusted his pride, but finally, he trusted the Lord. Closing here, Judges chapter 16, verse 25, the Bible says, And it came to pass, Samson is a prisoner, when there the Philistines' hearts were merry, that they said, Call for Samson that he make a sport. And they called for Samson out of the prison house that he was kept in, and he made them sport. And they set, set in between the pillars of this temple. In verse 26, And Samson said unto the lad that held him by the hand, Allow me, suffer me, that I may feel the pillars whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. Let's drop down to verse 28. And Samson called unto the Lord. Here's a man who trusted his strength, he trusted his cleverness, he trusted his emotions, he trusted his pride, and finally, he trusted the Lord. Verse 28, Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, think of the anguish of those words. Here's a man whose eyes are blinded. Here's a man who's been humiliated in front of his enemies. There are more Philistines in this arena than have been killed in his entire life. And they're all jeering him. He's being humiliated. That's what his circumstances are. But he's also humble in spirit. And the Bible says that Samson says, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O oh God, that I may be once avenged of the Philistines for my eyes. So the Nazarite, 20 years he judged Israel. He trusted his strength, he trusted his cleverness, he trusted his emotions, he trusted his pride, but finally he got back to trusting him who blessed him as a Nazarite. Finally he got back to trusting him who poured out his spirit, so that he could accomplish all those magnificent feats that we read about in the book of Judges. Finally, he put his faith and confidence and trust in the face of his enemies. And he's a humble Samson. And we will see him in heaven one day. He trusted the Lord at that particular time at this most deep and dark point in his life. The rest of the story, you know. The Lord, spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. He pushed. The building came down. And more Philistines died during that time than within his entire uh, life as a warrior. The Bible says in Psalm 31, verse 24, Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Caveat, all ye that trust in the Lord.
That's the lesson that Samson learned that day. So what object lessons can we learn from the life of a Nazarite? He trusted his strength, he trusted his cleverness, he trusted his emotions, he trusted his pride, but most of all, he trusted the Lord. As believers, set apart to a life of holiness, let's reverse the order. Let the first point be that you trusted the Lord.